That's right, welcome back to another episode of Political Football. Uh, well and truly into the football season, and guess what? Political football is in full swing, baby. We are talking election season, we're talking rugby league, finally getting some uh, trends in relation to form patterns. Not looking too good for my beloved West Tigers, but Mitchie Moses, a million dollar man, gets it done for Parramatta against a uh, what was one of the greatest moments I've seen on the football field from Nathan Cleary uh, in response to that. Uh, we'll get to that a little later, but in terms of what we're going to lead off with the podcast, and before we get to that, let me just say hello to my great co-host, Mr. Joseph Boyden. How are you, mate? Tom, I'm good, mate. It's good to be back. I'm feeling great. Um, yep, we're what four weeks into the into the footy season, and I knew you'd be salivating with this election. So the timing of this episode works perfectly, and I'm excited to sort of get the wrap up from the election, and then head into the sport later on, and we can dribble on about the footy. Yep, and if there's ever a sign that uh, you know Parramatta is a continuing epicenter of um, you know Sydney's continual push west into the western suburbs of Sydney. Uh, it's the last week with uh, Mitchell Moses becoming one of the most uh, high, highly paid uh, players in the game, um, alongside Nathan Cleary at the Riff. Um, and now we can look both a look at uh, a week ago, Parramatta and Penrith are both blue. Now they're both red, um, and that's why we're leading with the song "I See Red" because, as we know, with this episode we'll be talking about uh, the election that took place on Saturday, the New South Wales state election. Uh, in which Labor was returned to power with a 6% swing statewide, uh, largely thanks to uh, big uh, gains in Western Sydney. Now, it's still unsure at the time of recording whether Labor will be a minority or majority. It's looking probably like a 46 or 45 seat um, uh, shape for them in terms of how many seats are holding uh, the Legislative Assembly. So um, that'll be a minority, but the um, the independents have already guaranteed supply. So Premier Chris Minns, uh, has now been newly minted. Uh, it feels good to be able to say that out loud, uh, you know, because we are completely impartial on this show here at Political Football. Um, and, um, yeah, so th- that was the case on that. So in terms of the changing seats, just for the a bit of information for the viewers out there, uh, Camden uh, went. That was a bit of a surprise. It's 55-45 now on latest count. East Hills, um, some describe that as a Florida for, of, for, for Labor in, in, uh, in the western suburbs of Sydney. In other words, the Democrats... Always have the promise of winning Florida, but they never have. Close as I went was all our goal in uh, 2000. Um, but they won that uh, with Kylie Wilkinson, who's an outstanding Australian, an outstanding local member she'll be. Uh, Canterbury-Bankstown uh, Person of the Year a few years back has been involved in starting a domestic violence shelter for uh, for those who have suffered domestic violence and you know, and is involved in the local touch football club. What do you, what's not to love about that? Good on you, Kylie. Well done. Uh, Monero, that was a surprise. Bit of bush stuff there down your part of the world. Monero and South Coast both went to uh, Labor. That seems to be a continuing trend on from federal and local politics uh, post-bushfires and, and sort of the concerns of um, that middle road of climate change and local representation down there. Uh, and then Penrith, Parramatta and Riverston completed the red wave in, in Western Sydney. Two, two seats won by Independence, Wakehurst and Woolundilly. Woolundilly was one that sort of the lips slept on a bit down there, Warragam, but damn way. We recently visited that as part of a work trip down there, so it was good to see and visit the great people of Woolundilly. And I look forward back going to the, the Wallachia Hotel uh, at one point in the future. Um, and so there's five seats still in the balance. I think it's closer down to three, but at the time of writing this brief, uh, it, was about, it, was, it was five. So 
Um, that's that. Uh, any takes uh, from? I know, I know, you're still a resident of the ACT, ACT uh, in terms of voting enrolment. But um, any observations in relation to the, to the election? You know, any posters around your part of the world? I know you're in the electorate of Balmain. You know, what was your take on it, just from a distance? A lot of posters, <clears throat> a lot of posters getting around. You know, it's like. I like to think of them as like, you know, footy Tarzos. Yeah, yeah. To get, you know, it's like they're putting their Tarzos up around on all the light poles. Um, so I love that. You're always taught not to judge a book by its cover. And we teach that at school. But then it's funny because you see the posters everywhere and you know no one, nothing about someone. But they're yeah. trying to catch your vote by the look of their face on the poster. So yeah. I find that interesting, Tom. They're the sorts of observation. I yeah, yeah. And the captions? Do you judge the captions of how good the captions are on the posters? Oh, not really. I feel like, you know... I ultimately am judging the book by its cover. I'm just going all face. Yeah. And speaking of footy Tarzos, there's a lot of speculation out there that I was the reason behind Tarzos getting banned from more hellos when I was in year four. I can confirm that is completely false information. That's fake news. Uh, but that's a little side point. <laughs> it's a little side point there. Um, and, you know, those Benji Marshall trilogy ones with the gold gold coating were really hard to get. So, you know, when I tried to get, take it off me, I'd get the fist out. But that's just another side point. Um, so we'll move on to a bit of analysis of the of the election. For me, uh, there were two key points of difference that convinced voters in key seats to hand the keys to the Bugatti to Labor. Um, and feel free, um, as one of New South Wales' most valued teachers, uh, to jump in here, Joseph. Um, number one was the removal of the public sector wages cap. So New South Wales public service employs 431,000 people, just over that number. Um, so it's the country's biggest single employer. So that includes nurses, teachers, police officers, paramedics, fireys, a whole bunch of administrative staff who work in those capacities as well as uh, other government agencies as well. Um, and I think in the context of the pandemic where people really were showing the value of nurses, the value of teachers and just with, with, with homeschooling and how much we value the public good of health, um, people really had sympathy to giving nurses and teachers a pay rise and the, the government... Uh, sticking to its wage cap of 2.5% and Labor saying we would abolish it with the prospect of obviously trying to give a pay rise higher than that number was an easy to, uh, to understand policy. And for those areas like Camden, uh, Parramatta, Penrith, Riverston, where there's a lot of teachers and nurses who live there, you know, housing affordability is an issue as well, both in the rental market and in terms of trying to get into the buying your own home. Uh, so teachers and nurses and those sort of essential workers are going more to the outskirts to be able to afford that Um that, that that ultimately would have been a key factor in their decision-making. It's a pretty simple thing, right? If I say to you, or well, one party's going to give you 2.5% wage increase every year, but one party potentially give you 4%, you know, what's going to inform your vote? Well, you're going to go 4. Yeah, that's right. Common sense, right? So that was... Um, so the, the biggest challenge now will actually be delivering that. So that was one point. The second point was linking the privatisation of public infrastructure to skyrocketing cost of living really hitting home for the people of Western Sydney. So um, there's been work done by Ilian um, and a few other pieces of strands of work which actually show that the cost of toll roads in Sydney disproportionately hit people in Western Sydney. New M4, M7 um, and the other t- all, the, all the roads that have been built with West Connects and everything um, interlinking there. You know, that's people from travelling west to east for work largely. You know, if you live in the North Shore, you live in the East, this wasn't really an issue for you. But in Western Sydney where there was, you know, I'm not, again, not without quoting the exact number, you know, tolls of a substantial amount of weekly budget in terms of travel. And Labor proposed a $60 toll cap. So again, a direct, immediate cost of living benefit against sort of the Liberals' pitch of the infrastructure. Infrastructure doesn't vote, mate. People vote. 
And that was and that was the difference there as well. It's a, people could say it's another easy to understand policy. Sixty bucks a week, you know, you use the ro- you use the roads, you know, the new roads, you get the places quicker. People are willing to pay willing to pay that, but not to a point where it's you know completely eating into their budget when they've got their mortgage going up or their rent going up, energy what, bills going up. What would the average be? So obviously, capping it's awesome, but what's the actual average now? Um, it, it's, I, I definitely think it's above that $60 mark. Right. I haven't got that alien figures in front of me, but I know for the top percent, 10% of households, it, it would be into the thousands of dollars a year. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that, you know, that, that could be over a hundred dollars a week, for example. Um, so yeah, I can get back to you that on that. And, uh, you know, maybe that's something we can take back to viewers for our, for our next episode. Um, as we dig deeper into the public policy world of New South Wales politics. Uh, <laughs> the, yeah, so that, that was that part. Um, and the other part was, as I said, relation to people v infrastructure, um, is that we're in a really tight labour market at the moment with low unemployment and low underemployment. So there's a skills crunch going on across the economy. It's really hard for employers to find skilled workers or workers across, whether they be from all the way from hospitality to high-end engineering skills across that space. While it's been a confluence of COVID, having a, a, a closed domestic market for a, sec- for a while, pushing down unemployment um, and you know, huge infrastructure builds um, and public sector demand. Um, so you can have as many fancy new schools in hospitals, and I'm all for that, right? Previous government did a lot of stuff, especially in the health infrastructure space. I'm not here wanting to be, you know, just make good, good stuff when it gets done. But there's no point being able to have all these wonderful things if you can't go see a doctor in that hospital or you can't be treated to by a nurse or you can't, Go to, um, you know, you know, you're struggling to find an early education spot for your child to go to preschool in. So that's where labour targeted as well in that space as well. So like the sort of like the opex versus the capex, you know, operating expenses. You people always forget about the operating. You want you want a big new shiny building, but you actually need people to fill it when it's actually done. That's, right. um, that's simplified, but that's sort of like the voting argument that got that got put into the community, which I really think um, think hit, hit home. Um, and 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 you know the. In 2015, for example, Libs took privatisation of the polls and wires to the, to the electorate and they won, they won the election. Right? So it was feasible at that point in time, but in an environment where cost of living is going up and Labor prosecuted a really good argument in saying, well, no, we build the asset, you know, we build these roads, government foots the bill for, to, for paying these things, and then we privatise it once. So the, the risk is mitigated by the, by the government of actually building it, and then you privatise a natural monopoly, whether it be poles, potentially, you know, city water... Um, you know the utilities um, along you know, other utilities on the way, um, ports like Newcastle Port was a disaster of a privatisation, um, especially when it was such a revenue generator for the government. Um, you know it just it doesn't it doesn't hit home because then, then a private company is not going to be able to buy because their ultimate goal is to make a profit. So that means prices probably going to have to go up, and they're really connected with voters. Or well, we're footing the bill of the stuff for building it, you know. But then we get. Government's not regulating the, well, you know, the sort of the, the cost afterwards, right? So sort of like a double whammy. So that's a bit of economics there for you. Um, I'm sure you know there's very thought, varying thoughts on privatisation, but um, I think um, for me, privatisation is a good example when when things can be really innovative. Like so, CSL Commonwealth Serum Labs, Labs, which is one of Australia's biggest companies now, based out in Melbourne, worth like over, I think its market capitalisation value is over two hundred billion or something ridiculous because we've got the world's largest store of plasma. That's a space biotech, medtech, where you can be really innovative and it, and, it rewards, and it rewards effort. Whereas natural monopolies, where you have a monopoly, like there can only be one toll road operator. You can have a few, but in Sydney now, transurban dominates a lot of it, right? 
you, when you have a monopoly, you have market setting power in terms of pricing. Um, so that's a, that, that, that's sort of what we're looking at there in terms of what should be privatised, what should what what shouldn't against what should not be privatised. Um, so that's that. Any reflections on that, Joseph? Well, I just catch my catch my breath after just giving some knowledge there for a bit. There was a lot to sleep on there, Tom. Um, some pretty big words. A couple plasma biotech. <laughs> <laughs> not something I thought I was getting into today, but um, but yeah, I, I see the side. I see the side you're taking there, mate. And yeah, I like it. You've yep. done your research. Yeah, you're a well-read kid. <laughs> <laughs> Going forward, now I suppose. Election's been, uh, you know, run and done, or won and done, I should say. Um, but, you know, it's all good to win an election, but, you know, people will ultimately judge the government on what it delivers. Um, so some of the key policies to look for. So Labor had a big focus on domestic manufacturing, sort of following on from what Vic and Queensland have done. So that's building Tangara trains replacements in New South Wales. There's been a lot of issues with New South Wales transport being procured from overseas in the sense that you get it cheaper from overseas because you've got a lower lower cost base. But we've had ferries um, that have supposedly blown up on the wharf uh, on, while they're out in operation. Um, we've had trams have cracks into them with uh, not, not, many, not, not many years under their belt. Um, you know, we've had the issues with the trains. Um, so sort of getting that sovereign manufacturing capability with domestic manufacturing is, is always been a focus of labor being in a close to industrial base and, and the union. So that'll be interesting to see, uh, prioritizing access to upgrade the train stations, education. So your portfolio here, five new schools, largely in Southwestern Sydney, I believe, and a new primary school in Sydney Olympic Park. This one I really like changing 10,000 temporary positions, uh, into permanent positions. Um, I'm a big person on job security. I hate casualisation. Some people say it's overstated, but you know, government should be leading the way there and trying to create permanent roles where we can so we get people like you staying in the sector long term. Um, 100, uh, 100 public preschools uh, as part of that expansion of uh, four-year-old uh, pre, free pre- preschool education. Banning students use of mobile phones in schools. <laughs> to be honest, I'm surprised. Mate, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, well... To, to be you honest, chop their bloody hands off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's you with the coal folks to come in there with the guillotine and say, "Put your hand out, say, Jim." Did I say you playing Tetris on your phone or whatever? Whatever games like kids play on their phone. Mate, they go back to the classics these days. It's actually kind of cool. Well, like snakes and ladders. Yeah, a lot of the old sort of games that we used to play. A lot of chess at the moment. Actually. A lot of chess, like, right? Most people, most people you catch playing games are playing chess. <laughs> right, okay. It's actually kind of interesting. Very, very good, very good. Well, no chess for you. Uh, to borrow a bit of Seinfeld there, uh, the soup Nazi. Um, ensure 70% of funding uh, for vocational education goes to TAFE, which I like. I like vocational education being in public hands. Um, and three, manufacturing centre of excellence. So that's actually about supplying those manufacturing workers that I imagine would go into building the trains and other advanced manufacturing capabilities. That'll be a play with the federal government as well as they're just, I think, actually today passed their National Reconstruction Fund, which will target advanced manufacturing and, and key spaces like that, trying to get high-quality jobs um, and high-value-add work and more of the value-add here rather than overseas, which I'm a big fan of, as many people will know listening to the podcast. Um, so, yeah, just, just your thoughts on that in terms of the education policy there, especially schools, the, the, especially the temporary positions and the permanent roles. What's your experience in relation to that with, with both yourself and other workers? And then also banning student use of mobile phones in schools. Will that help increase, you know, retention of focus in classes, do you think? Uh, okay. 
these are some pretty big topics. You could probably run a whole podcast on them based yeah. off what I've experienced. But honestly, with with making new schools and let's just start there, making new schools, that's good, all well and good, but there has to be more encouragement for people to do teaching in university. Um, it's dying off a little bit in numbers lately and over the past like 10 years or so. Um, so building new schools is great and jobs are already kind of there. So it's not like the jobs are desperate because they're not there. The jobs are desperate because people aren't wanting to do teaching right now because the state of schools is declining. And I guess the standard is declining. So I feel like, I feel like more work has to be done in enticing people into the profession as it is. So that I think comes off salary will is the best place to start. Yeah. Um, I've, got a, I've got a couple of proposals for you. So I think with the new schools, that's largely a response to population. Southwest Corridor of Sydney, increasing population, right? They did, they, in the uh, Department of Education has a ratio, 23 students per primary school class, I think 20 per um, high school you know, class. Yeah, it's definitely... So it's, that's the population. I population. 100% agree. The more schools there are, the yeah. better the ratios can be. Yeah. But... They're, that won't fix problem. Like it's a big chain of problems yeah. in my in my opinion. Like the building new schools is one step of the way to yeah. help the ratio. But of, but in order to help the ratio, you still need more teachers to put yeah. in those rooms and the quality of the teachers you, you're talking to before. <laughs> so I've actually I've given this a bit of thought, and I know there's been various proposals. Actually, the, the coalition uh, in government offered the the idea of uh, you know rewarding. The top six hundred, um, the, so the top one percent of the teaching workforce with higher pay, mm. you know. But I feel like that would be a nightmare to actually observe. For me, and I'd be interested to get your take on this. Just giving you some thought would be, the the intervention actually needs to come from high school leavers and actually attracting people with who get ATARs above ninety or who, who into some sort of gifted and talented accelerated program at university. And then if that once if they go through that and they complete honours and they do you know all they you know they they excel in that then they can access an accelerated rate of payment where you can go from like earning whatever the entry payment is seventy five thousand to one hundred and forty thousand because I think the the pay is not too bad when you first enter teaching it's just it hits a ceiling after five yeah, years yeah and it doesn't increase incrementally as as much when you've been in the job for ten years yeah like what you're saying is one hundred percent correct if you raise the sort of ATAR or whatever to get into university, but also make it economically sort of viable and attractive. That brings brighter people to the job. That brings more quality teachers. But also that doesn't really speak for the sort of personal side of the job, which is a big part of it. But it is, yeah, I think it's a perfect place to start. Um, And then what was the second point you made? So more schools than... More, more schools that fills the population that fills the population gap and then they're, they're changing the temporary positions into permanent roles yeah, yeah that so at the moment like there's a lot of permanent available but not many people are wanting to take it because of these reasons like when these things start to happen like ratios get better pay gets better people will be more inclined to take permanent like but at this state permanent is a nightmare because you have five or six classes every day 30 kids in each class and it's just a zoo whereas when you get classes that have 10 kids in them it's heaven it's good you chat to every kid every kid gets the sort of one-on-one time that they need you can like you get time to help kids with their work but help kids out with something they're going through personally but when you one person with 30 kids 
it's honestly just making sure no one hurts each other. Yeah. The actual amount of teaching that gets done is very minimum. In a in a fifty minute period, if you've got thirty kids, you're probably doing, you're probably getting twenty good minutes of teaching in there, maybe. Yeah. If depending on time of day, there's a lot of factors that go into it. But if you get that ratio down at about one to ten, it's a very fun job to do. So, though, yeah, it's a big chain of things. I don't. There's not but do, one do we, issue. So, do, but if you were if you were on a contract or a casual. What do you get? Do you are you taking more classes with less less students in it, or like how does that get dictated? Well, it it just I guess it depends what school you're at and what right. you're doing. Like I'm casual right now. Um, I can go when I go into school most days. I could have a class with seven kids in it, yeah. or I could have a class with twenty five yeah. kids in it. So that's in a year eleven. So that's that's a, that's a volume question, right? In relation to actually having more teachers to be able to fill because that that's. Obviously, not being able to meet the yeah, requirements. Well, there's there's a certain number of kids in a school, and that's I guess the the growth of those kids or the expectation of those kids being in school. I'm not a numbers man, but that's kind of predictable. Yeah, like how many births are happening. Yeah, if those kids are going to go to school. You can predict that, so you can make an estimate of how many schools you might need to fit those kids yeah, in. Yeah, and that's but a, then you got to start yeah. thinking about how can we bring that ratio down, which is bringing in more teachers. Yeah. How do you bring in more teachers? You've got to entice more people to do it at yeah. uni. How do you entice more people to do it at uni? Make it more economically attractive. Yeah. Make it sort of harder to get into higher paying, higher skilled. Yeah. And, you know, if I, if, yeah, if, I had a, if I knew that I'd have five or six classes that were, or even less, three classes yeah. who I could dedicate all my time to rather than scrambling and overworking myself to look after six classes. Yeah. If I could have three classes, 10 kids each, it'd be incredible. It'd be an unbelievably good job to work, highly rewarding, everything you get into it for, but at the moment, that's just not there. Right. And that's driving a lot of people away from it. Sure. Like people I work with every year who talk about wanting to leave or yeah. not liking it or wanting to find something else so cool. another thing I just thought of I was reading some work a little while back that the New South Wales Productivity Commission did a piece looking at how they when they changed I think in 2014 it was a national recommendation uh, from some level of some um, federal body where and New South Wales adopted it where um, they increased the the mid-career switch so like if I if I'm become you know if I'm a 30 year old you know, professional in professional services, and I want to make the switch to becoming a teacher. It used to be a one-year diploma that you could do on top of your existing degree, and that would qualify you to be a teacher. And then I changed it to a two-year master's degree. So that increased the the amount of time I have to allocate to doing additional study, increased the cost of the degree, and it's a disincentive for me to actually become a teacher mid-career. And so they, they did some work on demand and that sort of thing, and they said that's actually attributed to nine thousand, you know, people mid-career or, or at some point in their career actually switching to teaching. And I think there's you know the gap in terms of the actual demand demand for teachers like something like ten thousand don't quote me on that but it's it almost plugs the entire gap so there's some of your quantity quantity against you so I'll argue, I'll put a quality argument for it and a quantity argument for it so Chrissy I know you if you're listening mate maybe just uh, if you're gonna get me for an education roundtable uh, feel free to uh, to jump on board um, we didn't know we were running out of time on the um, it was a great discussion by the way great discussion um, the uh, on the measures but uh, just on health. Um, this is a big one as well, introducing minimum and enforceable safe staffing levels in public hospitals uh, and funding of 500 additional paramedics. So again, that frontline worker focus of labour really hit those Western Sydney electorates with. Um, uh, energy, so that'll be a big space going forward. Huge amount of capital slated for investment in renewable energy zones across New South Wales. 
But Labor, I think following Victoria's leader, their recent state election, announced the New South Wales Energy Security Commission to invest in renewable energy. In other words, like a public sector organisation to just really really target renewable investment and sort of fill the gap where the private sector isn't investing. Uh, and then in, on integrity, so it's a big one for me. Um, you know, I did some postgraduate work on that. Um, and this is a key part of it when I looked at the ICACs in Hong Kong versus New South Wales and just the strengths and weaknesses of it and a bit of a comparative analysis. Um, one of the key things that came out of that was that ICAC needs to be guaranteed of independent funding. In other words, the Premier of the day can't come in and say, oh, no, I don't, I don't want to be funding ICAC because the more money they have, the more power they have to go after, our, you know, sometimes shonky decisions or decisions that didn't follow uh, best practice protocol. Uh, so they're going to legislate that for guarantee increase independent funding for ICAC so the money can be attributed from an independent body that's at a, at a separate level of government and also getting rid of the senior trade and investment commissioner roles because let's face it, they are the jobs for the boys and you know they don't really do anything. If a business wants to invest in Australia because it's a, an attractive place, that'll be done by con- conduit here. It doesn't need some you know ex-politician being over there on 500k in New York. Um, as much as much fun as that would be for that individual, uh, it's probably not the best use of taxpayers' funds. So uh, that's that. Uh, we're actually introducing a new segment for this week. It's called Political Questions. Uh, I just created a segment right now. Um, but we've actually got a few questions ca- that have come through, and uh, Joe's going to rattle them off, and I'm going to share my uh, my two cents of wisdom uh, to, g- to give my best response to it. All right. Tom. Yeah. Sophie from Neutral Bay would like to wonder... How you feel about Labor's plans to cut consultant spend? Right. Well, as a, as a consultant myself, and I believe Sophie's also a consultant and also chair of the uh, United Australia Party Neutral Bay branch. <laughs> Hope she enjoyed that. I don't know if, if, uh, if she's actually listening. Or if you did get this far, congratulations if you're someone else listening. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, so that's a, that's a federal level policy. I don't believe that was a policy of New South Wales government, uh, of Labor coming into power. Their, their policy was targeted at actually reducing the number of senior bureaucrats, so like the number of uh, public sector executives, by 15%. Uh, that was their key policy there. So um, that, was, that, was, that was the main thing there. Um, oh, yeah, and also just to freeze the pay of, of politicians and, and public servants for two years. Um, so I think that's I think that that's targeted. The public servants part of that is top bureaucrats. So that wouldn't be nurses, teachers. Obviously, that's part of the election promise. But that's sort of high ranking, you know, sort of trimming the fat, or as uh, Donald J. Trump would say, drain the swamp. They're going to drain it. Except that this time's coming from the left of politics because let's face it, you know, there's I feel like there needs to be a rebalance. It's just about a rebalancing of the public service. Libs get in and, and for the pers- for the sake sanctity of this person, I won't name them, but they uh, you know they love appointing a commissioner. You know, if there's an issue that get a commissioner on it you know let's pretend he's doing something commissioner I think uh, Perrottet actually promised a supply chain commissioner to get grocery prices down <laughs> during, the, during the course of the election campaign uh, which really makes me laugh because let's face it what's the supply chain commissioner going to go oh it calls them all I don't want you putting your prices up no 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 you can't have it you can't have it that's not um, you know that's the classic example of that so it's just about you know, reducing the ratio. If you're an executive, right, you get paid well, you know, you need to t- look after a bigger portfolio of things because you're not on the ground, you know, so that's more administrative things. So there's been a re- complete, you know, if you look at it like a, like a pyramid, there's too many people at the top of the pyramid, people have got to fall off. <laughs> a few people have got to fall off and we've got to, build, you know, build it from the ground up. So um, that's my response to that. All right, Sophie. There you go. Sophie's back. Sophie's actually. back. She's got a two-prong question. Sophie's back again. She's got another yeah. question. Thank you, Sophie, from Neutral Bay. Uh, what do you think, Tom, 
of Labor's plans to cancel the upgrade of Circular Quay. Uh, well, the actual policy is just to upgrade the wharves and the promenade, uh, not to go ahead with the Cale Expressway, you know, New York Highline Vision, whatever they had, some fantasy plan they had down there, or get rid of First Fleet Park and, and put some sort of thing up there that would ultimately lead to more apartments. Uh, we've got to preserve public space um, as much as we possibly can. And outside of, I mean, look at what happened in Barangaroo Headland Park. That was supposed to be three times bigger than it was, and it ended up being um, a third of the size of what, it, of what it was originally intended to be. And then there's a whole bunch of residential apartments going up there. And the the uh, the taxpayer got no reward for it. The New South Wales taxpayer got no reward for it because it was transferred to the Barangaroo Land Authority, whatever it was called, for a dollar, which ended up transferring it to Crown. Um, so that that's that's how that well planned. When you let developers at the table too much, that's what occurs. Now I'm a fan of Barangaroo. It's the three office towers. Being a fan of working down there, but Crown is a blight on it down there. So we can't let that happen. And sometimes to Borrow a football analogy, uh, aptly being that political football, sometimes you've got to go up the guts before you can spread the ball wide. <laughs> you've got to get that authority, right? And it, when it comes to a situation where the net, net debt is $114 billion or 15% of gross state product, right, people want value for money. People, you know, people are still going to come to Circular Quay, right? People want to be able to get on a ferry that doesn't blow up on the way there to Circular Quay. That's what I certainly want to be able to do. Not look at, go to some fancy five-star restaurant on the top of a, of a deck on top of the bloody ferry wharf, you know, looking all like New York. Sydney is Sydney, right? We're not New York. We're not London, right? New York doesn't have a harbour like Sydney or, you know, we don't have a public transport like network like London. That's why you visit London, to get on the tube. <laughs> but, like, stop, stop pretending we want to be something else, right? We, we, it's, it's Sydney. It has its own identified value, right? We don't need some... There's plenty of restaurants around Circular Quay. Go to Groves and the Place. Go to Mary's. Go to Hubert or wherever you want to go in the fancy place in the city, right? But, you know, it's, it's fine. Upgrade the wharves. That's the most important. You want things to be able to function first before you can go to some fancy restaurant. So that's what I would say to that. Sophie, you've got a lot to unpack there, mate. Yeah. So <laughs> you'll be busy for the, for the rest of the evening, I'd, I'd imagine. All right. Caitlin from Camden. Yeah, the heartland. Caitlin from Camden. She wants to know what demographic challenges... Do the Libs face going forward from the election time? Well, obviously now from every election going forward, more millennials come in to vote. And the millennials have a clear voting habit towards more progressive politics, whether they be Labor or even more progressive in, uh, towards Greens or Independent. So as they make up a bigger share of the voting base, the sort of the baby boomer generation um, and that have, a, a, you know, have a shrinking size of the vote. Right, and, and the two biggest indicators, that's not, that's not to say these people can't change their voting habits over time, you know, but the thing is, uh, you know, the younger generation are continually getting locked out of the housing market because they can't afford a deposit for a home, um, so they're getting pushed into the rental market. So that sort of traditional thing of, you know, you own a home, you become a liberal voter, sort of that, that basis is eroding to an extent. Um, and, you know, as more young people make up the composition of the voting base, then that, that challenge is going to occur. The other thing I would say... Uh, and this is not a shot at anyone because I want to see good people enter politics, but the Liberal Party is becoming a talent vacuum. I mean, outside of my good colleague, Lockie Moses, you know, the, the, you don't see many people of talent going into You don't see people like Andrew Charlton or Peter Malinowskis going into the Liberal Party, that's for sure. People have got a bit of talent, a bit of starch about them. Um, so that's what I would say is that they've actually got to look at the people they want to get into the party and pre-select those for those values they want to represent. If they want to represent that broad church that Johnny Howard spoke about, it's not about going further and further to the right. We have a compulsory vote in Australia. So politics is one from the centre. If you stray one direction too far the other, then you get ultimately punished for it because 
you know, most people are operating in the centre and people are very reasonable and just want to see good policy and not, you know, politicking over the course of that. So that's what I would say to that. And I would say that played out in Camden, um, you know, places like uh, Penrith, you know, like Penrith is liberal at a federal level. There was a redistribution of the seat there. So there's factors at play there to say these places can't go back to being liberal. You know, if Labor didn't live up to its expectation of government, but they do face some structural challenges there. And unless they get real about it, they'll continue to lose elections. There you go, Caitlin. Put that on your dinner plate. Yeah. Um, absolutely nailed, Tom. I think the listeners will be, listeners will be very happy. Um, yes. There we go. So that, that, that'll, um, thanks, Joe, for delivering those questions in such a professional manner. And I hope those, uh, those long-time listeners and first-time questionees uh, will uh, enjoy those responses there. But um, that's where we're going to park. We're going to park. Um, the, uh, the politics there and the policy there, and we're going to move on to some sport very shortly after this short commercial. Here we go. Two-point field goal attempt. Oh, Mike Cleary. Oh, he's done it. He's, he's got it. Oh. Yeah, he's got it. Nathan Cleary sends us to golden point. Last play. The ball of Moses from in front. He's kicked it. The Eels win in golden point. There you go. Uh, that was the last sequence of plays in the good old Western Sydney derby that is becoming one of the great rivalries in rugby league. Uh, Parramatta v Penrith. Both newly minted red seats. Just I can sleep a bit easier at night because of that fact. But I love when these two teams come up against each other. They're always classic battles. Um, and you know you're in for a treat. And the sequence of play, as you heard there, Gus Gould having an aneurysm when Nathan Cleary kicked the field goal from 43 metres out with 10 seconds on the clock to go to tie, 16 all with a two-point field goal. And then Mitchell Moses, the new $1.25 million man, um, coming home and hitting the goods after a penalty march in the downfield after Mitch Kenny just lost his brains and just came out of the line and rocked someone. Um, you know, and, and delivering a short-term investment, a return on investment there. Uh, so, look... It's been a great first month of, of rugby league, as uh, Peter Volandis would say. Um, there's been some classic games. Obviously, as a Tigers fan, 0-4, you know, I've had plenty of DMs lining up, but it's easy to kick a man while he's down, but I'll be keeping receipts you know, when we come back later in the year because we're not far off. I'll tell you what, we're not far off. Um, but uh, let's go to you, Joseph. I want to hear who's you been your biggest surprise packet and, and who, are you, who are you worried about? And when you could be worried about, it could be a team that you thought would be top eight that's going to miss or obviously you go with the seller dweller, but I'll leave that up to you. Yeah, mate, look, history of the political football podcast suggests that I'm very anti-New Zealand Warriors, um, which I was last year. But I think they've shown a lot of fight this season so far. They've I didn't expect them to do absolutely anything this year, but they've come out with a very brave sort of style of footy and they've beaten a couple of teams who I thought they had no shot against and they've just looked good, very resilient after the last few years they've had. So it's easier to say who's my, like as the biggest surprise, it's easier to say those teams like the Broncos or whatever. But I think someone like, someone like the Warriors um, actually shocks me because the Broncos and, and whatnot, they have rosters and they have teams that are built to be good so it doesn't shock me when teams like that go good um but yeah i like to see the warriors going well and another team a lot of people might not think are too surprising are the titans for me i know they lost on the weekend to the cowboys but the week before that they held their own against melbourne 
And Melbourne put on a flurry of tries, and usually a lot of teams absolutely drown against Melbourne in under that sort of circumstance when you're 12 to 14 points down. But Titans worked their way back into the game and had a high-scoring hit out with, with the Storm, which the Titans haven't really had a history of doing. They usually just roll over. Um, so, yeah. And then other than that, maybe the Dolphins as well. But that's kind of obvious. But seeing they've lost their key playmaker now for quite some time... Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they bounce back from their first loss of the season. Team I'm worried about, I'm worried about the Roosters tomorrow night. I'm worried about the Roosters. There's a lot going on in Rooster Town. Uh, obviously, you still don't have... You, you've you lost a couple weapons, sorry. Um, you've lost, you haven't got Crichton back yet. You've lost Sawali to Union. I know that's not for a couple of years, but... You know, when when you're playing with someone who inevitably is leaving to bigger and better things, um, you know, like, does that cause a riff in the team? Most players would definitely tell you that it doesn't, but, you know, they are humans too, so who knows? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just I just feel like something's, something's brewing down there in Rooster Town, yeah. but, you know, Uncle Nick will pull out the... Pull out the check bag, the checkbook again, uh, and probably pull in someone else. So yeah. uh, they will be fine, but... I worry for them just in the next maybe month or two. I still think they'll make the finals. I still think they'll make the eight, but I see another tr- tricky, challenging season coming their way. Very interesting. And seeing that we're on the Roosters, and we might as well segue to it now. You mentioned uh, that uh, that famous name now that's going to the old Wallaby Fruit and Nut. The old Wallabies there, uh, you know, the Cadbury sponsored. Uh, does I've got a question here from uh, Nicholas McNamara from... Uh, Bondi, I believe his latest residence is. I uh, live in the, uh, the the life over there in Bondi. Um, tragic Roosters fan, one of fifty in the area. Um, <laughs> is it, does Joseph Suali'i play Origin this year? Um, given the context of him leaving, does that have an impact on on his ability to play Origin or get selected if he's technically in the best seventeen? You talking about Joseph Akuso? Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, okay. Joseph Akuso. Uh, I ah oh, yes. I think he. I don't think it's going to stop him from playing Origin. If he's playing unreal footy, then yeah, he should be in the Origin team. I think Freddie Freddie Fittler needs to learn and maybe should learn that the best players to put on the park will win you the game, especially. But it does worry me that he's playing centre at the Roosters and he's not being. He will absolutely not get picked as a centre in New South Wales. Yeah. So it worries me that he's not playing in the position that they might pick him for at in origin. Yeah. Um, so just based on that, I wouldn't necessarily want him to be picked. Yeah. I think the only players who can like slot into positions they don't play in on a weekly basis are those Trebojevic's and the Latrell Mitchells who are just yeah. game breakers. Um, obviously, Suwali is somewhat of a game breaker, but... At such a young age, never played Origin before, I'd be, I'm a little bit concerned if he's picked on the wing. Uh, I think Brian from Penrith is a lock. To'o. And I think there, yeah, I, I do think that, ex, that other wing spot is open, so I'm really interested to see what they do there. I won't be mad if they pick Sawali, but I wouldn't mind them just picking a safe winger under the high ball. Yeah. I think, uh, I think after the last year and Fox's World Cup, you don't, you have to pick Fox. Yeah, um, I mean they're the they're the definite loss. And, and he's been a dynamic for New South Wales in the past, and it was a mistake picking, picking Tupu. I don't see, um, and I don't see a spot for Sawali on the bench right yeah, now. Yeah, but that, that's a that's a good point. That, that's a that's a form based question. You know, there's other people ahead of him. 
the, I think some of the, some of the origin of this question for some pockets of the media, whether it be Fox or um, or Gus on Channel Nine, um, and been saying you know because he's going to Union, he shouldn't be eligible to play play um, play league. That's just a ridiculous argument. I mean, league has poached a, poached a whole bunch of players from Union that um, they've discovered talent in, whether it be in a private school or in the in the bush somewhere. You know, this is just one back for for Union. You know, so I um I have I have no issue with that at all. Um, and you know, it's it's almost like squaring. I mean, he played rugby at school with the Kings. Played rugby there, um, and and played league. You know, a lot of you know Adam Dewey was another one Australian schoolboy in both codes. Cameron Murray, uh, Angus Crichton. You know, there's there's been a collection of them over the years. You know, go back to Lottie Takiri and 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 Wendell Saylor. They did it. Matt Rogers. You know, so it's been a collection. It's a battle. You know, I'll get that, but. Um, you know what? You know what's more appealing to Joseph getting paid? You know probably eight hundred thousand dollars max as a centre. Because uh, let's face, you know Tedesco's the, the the world's best fullback, and I, I know he's got to, he'll retire at some point, but that's still four or five years away. Um, or getting paid one point six million dollars to play for your, play for your national team, where, where everyone gets around you, whereas everyone, if you play for East, everyone hates you. He's got so much time on his hands as well. Yeah, like he's he's turning twenty this year, and he's le- he'll be leaving. And then finishing that contract when he's you know twenty seven ish, so at like the athlete's prime, yeah. With then with the opportunity to come back yeah. into league, so like could be a not, sunny build contract. He's not at a point right now where a switch is gonna be the rest of his career, and he's locked in one thing for the rest of his life. So yeah. I like I, you can't blame him. Yeah. I'm excited for it honestly. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And people will say you know they'll question his transition. Oh, he's still young. He's still got a whole bunch of to prove it. He, he, he's lived up to every. You know, I'm happy to say this. He lives up to every bar so far. He's his physicality, uh, you know, his you know his aerial prowess. These are all, all great transferable skills that that we saw Israel Folau explode onto the scene before he got cancelled by Alan Joyce um, <laughs> um, in, in Union, and that it's it's ironic how close the the bars are. I think when he does join, he'll be one of the first things he'll do. will play that uh, British and Irish Lions series, which is the same series that Israel Folau came back in in. Uh, in 2013, I think so. Um, that um, that'll be interesting to observe. And I think, uh, you know, like people say, oh, you know, you know, they, you know, Wallabies aren't as good as what they used to be. Uh, have you? Heard, they, they, they don't know how to play rugby in Northern Hemisphere. When I say that they don't know how to play, they don't know how to play real footy. Mm. You know that, that we play down here with Australia, New Zealand. You know, like you know, you, you see those games. I think Ireland are getting better, and and you know they're getting better at more attacking play. But you know, those like uh, you know Six Nations game where you see they score twelve nine. So bloody watching paint dry, you know. You want to see Joseph Suwalee connecting with Tommy Wright, yeah. uh, another one who traded between Union and and league. And um, there's a lot of time. The the World Cup that he's leaving for is quite a long time away. So there yeah. could be there could be kids as good as him coming through school right now who yeah. just don't have the publicity that he had. But seeing the switch he made, they might end up just sticking with Union, like yeah. coming through those big GPS schools or the schools up in you know, up in yeah. Queensland. Um, but this really will like regardless of his form at the Roosters this season and next it it doesn't matter how well he plays or what he does because he's become such a celebrity and such a big name so many people are going to watch the Union games that he yeah. plays in so it, it really is like going to be a successful move yeah. for Rugby Union and then that leads into our next question um, is again from Nicholas McNamara from um I'm not sure if we saying the last name on the call, but I just did, but I'm unlucky, <laughs> mate. Um, who is Eddie Jones going to poach next? So who's on, who's on his hit list, hit list next? So there's some names 
that you can think immediately think of Angus Crichton potentially uh, Cameron Murray um, I think the, I think both are, I think I think Angus Crichton's more short term Cameron, Cameron Murray resigned at South not long ago um, Adam Dewey is, is is another one that could potentially you know play ten in Australia schoolboys has some experience in Union got a big boot on him and. Um, you know, perhaps his lack of speed would be more suited than you. <laughs> um, no, no questions, criticisms to you, Adam. Good on you. Um, if, you if you're listening, but um, you know, then there's probably a whole gen, gen, next gen of players that Eddie's probably lining up. But um, who, who do you, if you had to pick one, who who would be your your hit list for um, for Union? Well, I, I think someone like Crichton, like he's he was such a huge name while he was at school yeah. and he's kind of like in a little bit of a twilight zone right now like he hasn't been playing I think this sort of <laughs> this sort of <laughs> this sort of um, situation with Sawali might be enticing for him but I get oh, I think it, de- it depends on the plan Rugby Australia Rugby Australia want to go with do you build this magnificent superstar back line or do you balance it out do you aim for a forward next do you aim for a big boy you know what I mean like who do you go get someone who will bring attention to the forwards or boost more people towards you know what I mean like yeah. do you do you just focus on the back line and try and build some just amazement that's going to happen mm-hmm. on the on the park every weekend or are you going to bring more league fans over with a big boy yeah. In the pack, so uh, it depends what what direction they want. I, to do, I just think the the skills are so much more transferable in the back line than they are in the forward pack. Oh, absolutely. In terms of you know like technical scrummaging, you know when's the last time you saw a decent scrumming league? On other points, you know Melbourne winning the scrum against West on the weekend, that's just ridiculous. Um, you know, but it happens once or twice every year. But no one pushes. It's just someone someone just started to keep their foot out. Mm. Yeah, you know, so the whole sort of you know scrummaging practice that goes into that the, the technicals line outs. You know, like yeah. there's all, all those technical aspects. So I think the the back line when you do get that free flowing ball that's where the you know because a back row in league is effectively an outside centre or inside centre in union yeah. Um, so that's what Simi Burgess played that's what I imagine Angus Cron will play that's what he played at school I think when he and if he did go across that's what he played um, I wouldn't even rule out Ponger at this stage right yeah like that's a that's a big call but he's had a lot of issues obviously yeah. with his HIAs in his head but like he was a like ground shattering union yeah. player, yeah. and imagine him and Suwali. Yeah. Well, the, he, he's. Oh I think would there be a question about whether he represents Australia or New Zealand, given his father's lineage? And I know he said he's wanted to play in the All Blacks before. He has options to do both, though. I he? think I think so. He, would, yeah. he was born in WA. I mean, if you throw in yeah. Suwali bag at him, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> well that's, that's what you forget he loves about. Like, a bag too, that yeah, boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we cannot confirm that is just an allegation. <laughs> Please, Joseph, if you're listening, we did not mean any harm by those comments. Good on you. Um, <laughs> We um yeah the, so yeah, it's one like it's when you think about it like playing for your national team but then when your national team so one point six that year like it's different it was different because yeah. you look view representation and league as a um as like a high run of actually getting paid really well at your club yeah. whereas in union given their shifted like the Wallabies almost like a seventeenth NRL club these days you know that's what I was, what I was joking that going from the Roosters to the Wallabies will be the only time you go from you actually get a bigger crowd going from league to union <laughs> every other club you probably get more fans yeah. jokes jokes I know yeah, yeah so those people in the east and north a bit soft when it comes to you know your old your old union game I played at at school you know um, but that's neither here nor there um, moving on to our next question is um, this one's from Lachlan from West Pennant Hill so we're heading to the hills here um, the question is what coach will be the first to go in 2023 oh. That's a big call for me. It's a um, it's a pretty simple one. I, got, I I reckon there'll be relative stability in the coaching ranks. I mean, 
you're, if they say one fours, you know, there's a whole merry-go-round that goes. But just looking at positions, a whole bunch of clubs have got new coaches in the off-season. I would say the biggest one that's on the hook is Hook. Hook Griffin. Yeah. Um, because they told him he needs to reapply for his job. The Dragons down there, their head office is almost bad as the Tigers sometimes um, in relation to how they manage things. But um, he's been asked to reapply for his job. It won't help if they continue to get results like they get blown out on the weekend against Cronulla. Um, so for me, he, he's a clear candidate. I think it's harsh, you know, like, who wouldn't, who wouldn't want to be a coach? You just, you just get panned from pillar to post. Um, you know, he, he had some success with the Broncos and, and the Panthers, um, but, you know, a lot of it's a timing thing. That's a lot of Ben Hunt. Um, you know, who else really has a crack down there on a consistent basis? Um, you know, Zach Lomax has tapered off. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he was, a, he was a, he's a big part of their cap there. They struggle with the acquisition of a fullback. Tyrone Sloan's got, Sloan's got some promise, but by far he wouldn't be in the top half of fullbacks. Moises M by Aaron Woods, I think, is actually going to Manly. Um, that leads us to the next question. But um, yeah, I just think it's, you know, uh, do you see anyone in trouble outside of Griffin being nah, the number one you, priority? You beat me to it. It's yeah. got to be Griffin. And it like might not hurt. You know, they a fresh start, fresh change. Um, you know, the Dragons don't have a lot of promise this season so if they're going to look in a different direction they may as well do it ASAP um, and just rebuild from from the ground up I guess they're a bit of a lost cause right now yeah. sorry Huey but the other one the, yeah, the other one I would say would be the potentially Newcastle uh, what's his name oh. yeah but it has, hasn't worked in Newcastle O'Brien yeah O'Brien it hasn't yeah. worked in Newcastle they've like they've like they love chopping a coach but like yeah. Hasn't worked there. That's not the fix. They've got a decent team, Newcastle. They've won, like they've won a couple games this year. Yeah. So like that's not. It's it's like the same situation for the Tigers. They might not even if they don't go on to be successful. Yeah. Firing a coach is the last thing you yeah. want to do because you've created all this drama. You've fired coaches in the past. You've done it before. Yeah. If things aren't working right now, that just means it's a time issue. You need time under yeah. the same system to get better. Yeah. But he's so, been there for a few so years. So the Tigers now. sacking coaches, even if they get the spoon again, wouldn't make yeah. sense. Yeah. So yeah, like, I don't think that'll occur with the, with the long term play they're putting. They finally got some long term security there. But um, same with O'Brien though. Yeah. I, don't, I just don't think it'd make sense. Yeah. Cool. Well, there, there's your answer there. Sorry, um, um, Hook. But if you want to come on the podcast, let us know and we'll we'll find a spot for you. We can talk some rugby league. Um, last question here we've got uh, coming in uh, before we get back to the general discussion wrap up the podcast will be um, uh, let's have a look here Mr MJ Skinner down there in um, down there in the nation's capital Canberra uh, Braddon I believe he lives in Mr MJ Skinner from Braddon oh you look yeah because um, what will the Blacktown workers sorry when will the Blacktown workers rocket up the New South Wales Cup ladder with the addition of Sharon Woods <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh um, any relation to Aaron um, referring to his old haircut when he first left the Tigers uh, look yeah look I think uh, good old Aaron uh, you know was a was a World Cup winning prop but uh, is that a fall from grace due to some poor advice and um, and leaving at the wrong time um, but um, yeah look I'm not, I'm not going to spend any time on the Blacktown workers because every three months someone gets eaten by the crocodile in the Northern Territory uh, but bit of Bob Catter there for you but um, yeah look Manly going well, so maybe that's some consolation. But yeah, look, uh, Blacktown workers, Sharon Woods, might be a permanent fixture going forward. Um, there we go. One one last thing I wanted to discuss as well uh, was that Nico Hines. Um, I know some of our listeners have varying opinions on how good he actually is, but 
I tell you what, Dalian Player of the Year last year and seeing his return on the weekend, it was like watching James Tedesco in 2015 where he would just take over a game and just dominate like and score tries in succession, succession, different ways to skin a cat. You know, he, he, he would, he would he'd ball play at the line for Brenton Nicara, um, to hit, you know, one of the best hole hitters, just hits holes inside shoulder. He just chops inside shoulders, as Cooper Cronk said on the Matty Job podcast. Glad someone's chopping. Um, <laughs> um, the, um, any, then he'll, then he'll ball play and show at the line. He'll bring people underneath. For me, he's putting forward a very strong case to become number six for the New South Wales Blues. I think Luai's sort of tapered off. He, he's tapered off and, and Nico, Nico alongside Cleary. I would love to see that. I'd love to see a Tedesco, Adeka, Brian Toto, Tom Trebojevic, Latrell Mitchell, Nico Hines, Nathan Cleary. Back on what? That is like a. I'm, <laughs> I so, the pulse. I'm, I'm so all about a, a two half back half combination yeah. in Origin. Origin's a different beast. Like in an NRL team needs a half back to lead their team each and every week. But if you got two guys who lead their team each and every week combined for three games during the middle of the year. One control one side, one control the other. Both have a good kicking game. Oh, yeah. get out of town. <laughs> and they can both run too. Oh, I've totally, Gus Gould. <laughs> I've totally eaten my words about Nico in this past week. I was on that on that train of not thinking he was as good as everyone else thought he was because he came out of that Melbourne side. But yeah, I fully, fully backtrack on that. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Well, there we go. Nico Hines and Nathan Cleary to pair in the halves. Quick fire questions before we wrap up here. Just a couple of tips for this weekend. Mm-hmm. Can Tigers get their first win of the week of, of the season against the Broncos? No one's given them a chance. Yes. Brilliant. What's the margin in tomorrow night's game between Parramatta and, and uh, East? Para by six. Para by six. Uh, Dragons, Dolphins, Saturday afternoon. Who gets the win there? Dolphins backing up after a, um, after a tough physical game. Dragons back at home. Dragons win, but controversially. There we go. And Sharks versus Warriors Sunday afternoon, fourth versus sixth. Sharks at home. Sharks too classy. Sharks 13 plus. Yep, there we go. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Um, there's the political football for another week. Uh, I feel like that was a very good podcast for sent through your, your reviews, if I do say so myself. And uh, thank you again, Joseph, for joining us here uh, in the lovely surrounds of somewhere in Sydney. Uh, unsecured location Um, and uh, we'll see you next time on political football thank you peace